It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined right now by Jesse Thistle. He is an award-winning Indigenous scholar and the author of a new book coming out in the U.S. on June 8th, From the Ashes, My Story of Being Indigenous, Homeless, and Finding My Way. It is one of those universal stories that is also intensely personal, and we are very grateful for him for writing it. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, for uh, for having a Canadian author on your show. Of course. <laughs> well, it's coming out in the U.S. on June 8th, so we're a little early here, but I know that, you know, it, you wrote it in Canada, and we are not holding that against you at all. <laughs> this is oh, thank you. a very brave story. It's a very brave story. The, the, I, I, I'm always fascinated by people who write memoirs because I find the the contemplation of the act terrifying and yours is very raw you you certainly didn't you didn't come up easy um it is one of those stories of of having to go to hell and back to to find redemption and love so um what made you feel like this was something that you wanted to share that you wanted to share your your private pain and your private journey with with the world uh well it's a story about addiction family disconnection uh, colonialism, you know, homelessness, uh, loss of identity. And so I realized that I had a, a responsibility to share my truth because it would create fellowship with other people that have similarly endured something uh, akin to what I've gone through and what my family has gone through. And so I'm speaking from a vantage point that doesn't really get the chance to share their lives. Like I was in jail, that was how I found education. And so uh, that's an important story to tell because these are the, the most dominant social issues in the country today, right? And so I had to speak to those, and, and uh, yeah, that's why I shared my story. So tell us a little bit of, about your story um, and, and set it up for us so folks know what to expect in the memoir. I mean, uh, you obviously, from a from a young age, I believe two, you're, you were abandoned by your parents, and so... Just, I guess, start there. <laughs> yeah, I was three and a half when my dad left us. He, he had a heroin and alcohol addiction, and he was quite abusive to my mother, who was Métis Cree, and her family lived along the, the sides of the roads as squatters uh, because we stood up against Canada. We went to war, my people, and we were totally uh, subjugated by the state, and we came to live on the sides of the roads. We're Métis Cree, uh, so mixed-blooded people with our own, like, uh, nationhood. And uh, because we challenged the state in such a way, like kind of like the Dakota or the Sioux did down south, uh, we lost everything. Mm -hmm. We went from the richest people in the fur trade to the poorest. And um, I show you what it looked like on the sides of the roads in one of these encampments right before my parents split up and uh, my dad abandoned me. And so uh, when I was taken from my community, uh, the, we were taken in by state authorities, we were placed in the home of my white grandparents in Brampton, Ontario. That's my dad's father. And so I was raised without a sense of my identity 
and I didn't know who I was, and this led to a lot of experimentations. I joined drugs. I joined gang story, and I eventually end up on the streets uh, fighting for my life. And uh, how I got off the streets was actually I committed a robbery, and that was my path to higher education. I mean, so it feels to of, me in like... In a nutshell, talk a yeah. little... <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a journey. Um, oh, go ahead, Justin. Uh, yeah, no, no it, like it, I, I was struck by the idea that the disconnect between your culture was playing out in in your personal life. And I'm assuming that as a young child and maybe even as an early teen, as you were starting, starting to sort of lose your lose your way or, or, or I guess I don't know, since that ultimately was how you found your way. I'm not sure if we can say it was losing it to begin with, but I'm sure that you weren't aware at that age that your actions were largely because you were feeling that disconnect from your culture. How did you put that no, together? I had no How did you idea. realize it that was... oh the the this when when did you when did well, you come to figure that out? Yeah, I was like uh, as a teen I used to like look around me and and in popular culture at the time there were all these references to indigeneity. Like, I remember wanting to be like Jimi Hendrix because he was a quarter Cherokee, or I'd heard that. I remember wanting to be like Jim Morrison. Oddly, there was wow. an Oliver Stone movie because he was shamanistic, and I tried to connect with, uh, yeah. you know, being Native that way. And so all these different places, which were actually toxic references of both masculinity and indigeneity, I picked them up and created like this false warrior persona when I joined mm -hmm. a gang. and. Uh, this kind of drove me. It made me very popular. Made you know, got a lot of girls and stuff. But ultimately, these things destroy you too, uh, because they're not real. And nobody told me that. And um, it wasn't until I went through the ringer, life on the streets, in and out of jail for 11 years, and then went to university, where I start to pick up positive references of indigeneity. I reconnect with my mom and her culture, and I say, and I say, hey, being indigenous is not about all these bad things that I've learned through popular culture. It's actually about being a kin member. It's about giving back. It's about being a good nephew or a son. You know, these are the things that make us indigenous, right? Belonging, and and supporting our communities. And so it took me years and years uh, to get there. In my my late 30s, actually, is when I went back home and reconnected with my culture. Why did you, um, you know, decide to do that? And, and in what ways um, did you learn things that you may not have known about your own culture and sort of correct that narrative that you had learned that you realized was wrong? Because I think that that's something that no matter what background you are, I think a lot of people, you know, they do that kind of discovery um, in their 20s and in their 30s. Like, who am I? Um, but this yeah. goes so much deeper than that. And I think um, indigenous identity um, in particular is one of those things where, you know, you acknowledge it and then you do a deep dive <laughs> because um, there is yeah. a lot of history there that we just aren't taught <laughs> at all in any mainstream setting. But also I think that it, it's it's sort of being connected to to your family and then trying to learn the stories of the trauma and all of the things that um, your ancestors have gone through to, to understand the present, right? Yeah, so uh, uh, there was a recent um, poll that came out last year during the election and it showed all the different various uh, races in America 
And for Native Americans, it had other. We weren't even a racial racial category, and that's the way our tr- our histories are treated. That's the way mm-hmm. our uh, connection to the lands are treated. We're just the other, right? We, you don't even hear us in these racial discussions. And so imagine trying to be a, a disconnected indigenous person through adoption, trying to find your way back to your home when the state and settlers don't even recognize that your people are anything than an other. And so it's very difficult because for people like me that grew up without a sense of their culture or history, that's kind of like your meta narrative. That's your anchor. You know who you are and your people's history in the world, and that gives you a positive direction to go in, right? Uh, like the the stories that people have of their ancestors that settled the land and all this stuff, or went through um, great tragedy to triumph. Well, for a lot of indigenous people that are disconnected, this just doesn't exist because the literature doesn't even recognize it. And so, right. what they're left with is picking up fragments of popular culture that's really designed to sell movies or books or magazines. They're not really talking about the real indigenous experience of what happened because it's not popular or cool to talk about like stolen land or trauma or missing and murdered indigenous women or missing fathers and destruction of our kin networks. And so it makes the journey back to ourselves that much more fraught, that much more uh, misleading in a lot of ways. And so... Uh, I think that identity for a lot of people, uh, especially indigenous people, is the way back to wellness, what we call uh, being re-embedded back into our relations of what we call uh, all my relations or wakudawan in my language. And that doesn't come through any popular culture or, or literature. That, uh, there are some stuff that are, are starting to emerge in Canada and uh, America where we're talking about like uh, generative love and reconnecting with our relatives and contributing to our communities. And that's done by mainly by Indigenous authors themselves because we just haven't had the proper representation in the public. And is that is that how... How do you help counsel people who are looking to find this, to, to, to ignore the performative representation or the false representation and to find authenticity in these stories? How do you counsel people to, to separate the, the wheat from the chaff, if you will? Well, I always get them to look at, like, what's the ultimate uh, uh, goal of, of the work that you're reading? Okay, so with mine, it's actually a story of love, right? And, like, I end mm-hmm. up in love. And it's not just, lo- like, romantic love. It's community love. It's love of academia. It's uh, finding my place in the world. That's a form of love. And so I get my readers and get other people to really examine while they're reading, what's the ultimate expression or message of the book, right? Is it sensationalist? Are they trying to like sell a, a, a book or are they trying to show you what re- reconnecting with kin looks like? Because that's what my book is about, right? You see that at the end. And that's one of the tenets of healthy indigeneity. Uh, reconstituting of our kin networks. And so you always have to look, uh, what's the message? And then you also have to talk about the stereotypes. What are the stereotypical images that are being portrayed of indigeneity and why are they doing that? That's the most important part. Why? What's the secondary why? You know, is it to sell stuff or is it to show the experience of what it's like Mm -hmm. to live as an indigenous person in modernity? Because there'll be a different tone that's used when talking about the same subject matter. You know, and so I try to do that with my students when they come into my classrooms and to, to, with my readers as well. 
One of the, it's amazing how often the answer to a question like that is, is there a profit goal or not? <laughs> and the answer is, if, if there is a profit goal, then you might not be looking at the kind of representation that you were hoping to be looking at. The number, the number of times that we have asked that question of an author who is doing similar work in different spaces, and that's the answer, I always find so striking. Yeah, yeah. And who's profit? Like, it, like, I always refer back to the work of Eve Tuck. She's a scholar at University of Toronto. Does what I do uh, benefit the indigenous community that I'm talking about? So do, does my mom and my brothers or me benefit in any way from sharing my story? If yes, then it's good. And it's good for a community. Or is it just lining the pockets of, you know, uh, publishers and music uh, or movie execs? And, and like, if that's the case, then it's probably not healthy for you or your community. And that's the gauge that I use to say, like, okay, maybe I should share this, or maybe I shouldn't. Does it impact my community in a positive way? Does it help them, or does it hinder them? And so that's the the measure that I use. I mean, I think that that works because there's so many things that um, the answer would be no, um, and we probably should mm -hmm. focus on the ones where the answer is yes. Um, one of the themes in the book is is about trauma and how it can manifest across generations. And we've talked on this show before about how that happens in the African-American community and how intergenerational trauma manifests. You know, if your if your great grandparents were enslaved and your grandparents were sharecroppers and your parents were born into a segregated America, um, then the trauma experienced by your ancestors um, is going to show up in the present. Yeah. Um, can you speak to how that is unique in terms of um, your own story? Because I think, you know, a lot of folks, especially folks who have, who come from communities where we've experienced systemic trauma, um, yeah. there's just, a, just so much more awareness about how that affects us in today, every day. Oh, I, my heart is just singing that you've talked about this because like I pulled from, I'm an academic and I, I write about trauma. That's what I focus on. And I pulled from uh, American, uh, black American experiences of trauma as well as Holocaust survivors of trauma in Europe. And we have a similar vein of intergenerational trauma. And the way that I talk about it in simplest terms so people can understand, it's like inherited post-traumatic stress disorder. So great trauma mm -hmm. happens from an outside outgroup to destroy an in-group or subjugate them. And in that process, that, like, that original trauma, it, it, it creates, creates social dysfunction within the people. So great, massive amounts of stress usually creates addiction, misogyny, homelessness, transience, all these different things. They know this. Psychologists know this. And so with intergenerational trauma or historic trauma, these sites of trauma, for my people, it was losing our sovereignty when we lost the, the Northwest resistance, our disconnection from land, and then the poverty, the deep, deep poverty that happened along the road allowances and the racism like Western Canada towards Indigenous people is like the Deep South in America. There's just mm. that huge divide between society. And so that original trauma never had a chance to heal and was passed down socially to the next generation and it got worse it gets worse over time it doesn't get better so by the time the 1970s come around with me and my brothers our communities are just in tatters and they fall apart and that's what i talk about in my research as well as in my book i show you the effects and how intergenerational trauma feels 
to a racialized person, a Métis person within Canada or North America. How and I know that other people like intergenerational trauma. Are... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry, keep going. Yeah, and I, I, I was just going to ask how you can. It, I, I have. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to ask how you can start to heal intergenerational trauma, especially when you are not uh, you're not in contact with the generations that came before you. You you were separated from your parents. You were with grandparents that didn't experience that without being able to to talk to your dad, to talk to your mom about what their experiences were and their parents. How can how can we possibly start to understand where the the sort that you know the long-term PTSD that you're carrying around where that comes from yeah so I've seen a show on PBS I don't know what the guy's name is he's a older gentleman and he walks celebrities through their history of their people through ancestry and so that's what happened with me I was in university and I was asked to write a, a essay about the colonial history of Canada and how my family was situated within that that forced me to go back to my community, to my Auntie Vaughn, and ask her about her research because she's a genealogist. And so that genealogy chart uh, back to my ancestors was how I, I actually kind of got to know my family and got to meet my ancestors. And then I started working with an expert in Métis history, Great Plains history at York University, who started contextualizing the lives of the people within the tree within hist historical monographs done by scholars. And I started to really understand the motivations of people. I started to see the systemic challenges that were faced against them. And I also came to understand that a lot of their actions was a reaction to this intergenerational trauma, this stress, right? And when you understand people's motivations, you come to forgive and you metabolize history in a different way. You know, and for me, that was the way that I um, actually got sober for the first time in my life. Really, really sober. Like I'd been clean for a few years, but it wasn't until I started meeting my ancestors, my living relatives, and understanding our history that I came to heal and get better and move forward in what we call a good way. Uh, and so I wholly believe in uh, in placement in your kin networks, as well as understanding your people's history through genealogy and historical texts. And that's what I do at university. That's what I teach people. It's so, so critically important. I mean, I I feel like in pandemic year, um, maybe I've been, this all has been more top of mind for me because I'm, I came to, you know, lockdown with my, with my family. And so then I found myself, you know, at this age having different conversations than I was growing up with my parents about their lives. Um, and I learned new things about my grandparents and about, my ancestors um i also happen to be in a southern united states uh state where mm. you know the remnants of the old south i'm in virginia um are everywhere there are there i mean you can you can't go that far without passing a cotton field and, I, and then i mean i'm from new jersey so that's not a thing that i would see all the time <laughs> growing up right outside of new york city um <laughs> so when i'm passing the cotton just know that I am thinking about who in my ancestry had been out there, right? I mean, I just think about it yeah. because that was just, it's not even that long ago. It's not that no. long ago. A hundred years is not a long time. Um, and it, you know, in a, 
in in terms of the bigger the bigger picture. Um, another question I had for you is about the addiction piece because I think we don't talk enough about how intergenerational trauma or trauma generally um, in life, whether that be like you had a car accident or you know a, a loss. Uh, a lot of people are experiencing that this year. Um, that that can result to um, addictive behaviors and self-destructive behaviors. And we criminalize addiction, especially here in the United States, um, instead of looking at it like a public health issue. Can you speak to um, to that piece of this conversation and, and that theme in the book? Because I think that's also going to resonate with a lot of people, even if they, you know, other parts of your background aren't similar to theirs. Sure, yeah, yeah. The book is... Uh... One of the the major themes in the book is addiction, right? And I try to show you in the book that addiction itself is a reaction to trauma. We know this. Psychologists know this. Scholars know this. It's not the gateway drug is not marijuana or cigarettes. The gateway drug to addiction is trauma, whether that's personal, whether that's familial, or historic or intergenerational. And so, if you have all three, your chances of um, you know, becoming an addict later in life are so much higher. And if you have what's called ACE, adverse childhood experience trauma, you're basically, you have like, uh, you know, 50 to 90% uh, developing addiction later in life. And so I show you all the different threads of trauma that we're dealing with uh, that eventually led to my addictions, you know, family disconnection, destruction of our sovereignty as Métis people, loss of my father, not knowing who I was. These are all very traumatic for me, and these are common uh, for a lot of people out there. I know I'm sure that there's listeners that relate to what I'm talking about, and so the approach that we're taking towards addicts that end up in our court systems is actually ensuring that they will become further addicts because the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection, is social connection. And this uh, I show in the book as well. I show a pathway out of addiction. And that's why psychologists like Gabor Mate, who's a world-renowned expert in addiction, uses my book to teach about addiction because it shows how when we're loved, when we're trusted, when we have purpose, when we have emplacement, we heal. It was really not about so, uh, sobriety time. It was about being recognized and accepted and finding social bonds that pulled me back into, uh, I guess, a lived reality or what I call uh, back into the circle. That's the term that we use as Indigenous people. And so I, I strongly advocate and believe, believe that. You know, I believe addiction is just a product of social disconnection and trauma. And if we rezoned people uh, that come in front of the courts instead of looking at them like criminals, Instead of looking looking at them like they're sick, right, because they've ingested something and their body's malfunctioning, kind of like when people eat too much sugar and their body malfunction, they become <laughs> uh, diabetics. We don't stick diabetics in jail. So why are we doing that with addicts? You know, look to examples like Portugal, where they've rezoned people into healthcare and they've gotten better. And then they, they become taxpaying citizens rather than sticking them in jail and isolating them and further entrenching their addictions. And so my book is about that. I show you my pathway off the streets. 
I mean, it's your pathway, but it, it sounds like you're, you're, I mean, you're describing a, a, a pathway out of so many of the oppressive structures that so many Americans and people in other countries also, including Canada, are facing. It's, it's your unique story, but it's one that you can see applied to so many facets of our lives. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful for you uh, for telling it. And I'm grateful that you've got students. Like, I just love the idea that you're sitting in a classroom shaping young minds. That's exactly the kind of education that we need more of down here. So thank you for doing that. The book is From the Ashes, My Story of Being Indigenous Homeless and Finding My Way. Jesse Thistle, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening. 